This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are going to listen back to a conversation I had with the extraordinary novelist Amy Tan. This was recorded in 2013, shortly after her novel, The Valley of Amazement, was released. Amy Tan is the best-selling author of The Joy Luck Club, The Kitchen God's Wife, The Hundred Secret Senses, and other novels. Her books have given voice to Chinese and Chinese-American women and explored mother-daughter relationships that resonate across all cultures. The Valley of Amazement again tells the story of a mother and a daughter, two remarkable women trapped between East and West, trapped by their gender and by circumstance in the world of Chinese courtesans. She is with me on the line today. Hello, Amy. Hello. This novel took you eight years to write, and it began as a very different book. The course of the book was changed by a picture. Can you tell me about the picture? I was in the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco, and looking at an illustration of courtesans, and it said that courtesans were very influential in bringing Western culture to the Shanghai, and I thought, oh, you know, strong women, this is very interesting. Bought a book on that, uh, Courtesans, Turn of the Century in Shanghai. And as I was flipping through the pages, I came across a photograph of ten women, and my jaw dropped because five of them, was they, they were wearing a costume identical to what my grandmother was wearing in my favorite photo of her. It was... Um, a jacket, a very tight jacket that the collar went up to the bottom of the earlobe, the, the um, sleeves stopped just below the um, elbows. There was white lining showing, matching bracelets, very tight pants, sitting in a Western photo studio that had floors, uh, flowers uh, around it. And I read, I continue to read, um, that this was the costume of a courtesan, and even more telling that the Western Photo Studio was a place that only courtesans went to. Um, there was also a headband, very distinctive, that pulled the hair back away from the face. Uh, I just was shocked and went to find other photos of my grandmother, and I saw that they, too, uh, reflected something I, I had never noticed before in that context. The pose was very alluring, hand on hip, um, and the, you know, sort of tilted toward the the chair, arm resting on the back of the chair, a look of disdain, um, and they were, had been taken over the years. So I was left with this mystery of a grandmother who had been described to me as old-fashioned, very traditional, stay-at-home, a quiet person. Here I had somebody who clearly was not old-fashioned. It was not that she was a courtesan, but she had worn these clothes, and the fact that it was so different led me into this obsession of looking for everything I could find about courtesans. And I eventually decided if I could not think about anything else, I had to abandon the book I was working on and begin a new one. And do you suspect that your grandmother may have been a courtesan? I went searching for research of many different kinds, but 
one of the things I did was interview a number of relatives and saw that there were contradictions, discrepancies, um, inaccuracies of date. And, uh, and whenever you find something like that, uh, there's a story behind a discrepancy. Um, one of the things was uh, had to do with um, her first husband. I was told she was the husband, the wife of a, the first wife of a scholar. It turned out she was the second wife, so she was in fact a concubine. That made a huge difference because people later on made a made a a point that she was raped when she was a widow and became the fourth wife later, which was a position of great shame because she had been a first wife. Um, and this was acknowledged by people who who claimed that she had been a first wife to the first husband. There were um, people who said she was quiet, and I found a relative who lived on the island where she she spent the last year of her life. And they said um, the woman lived there. She was only two when my grandmother killed herself. But she heard the stories from other relatives, and they said, oh, she had a terrible temper, and if you didn't listen to her, you, you got scared later. <laughs> and I, th- I thought, great, you know, she was a person of opinion. Um, she had certain attitudes that might have been ones that a courtesan had, because those courtesans were the ones of all classes of women, all situations of women who had the most freedom. By that I mean they could go anywhere they wanted, they could wear what they wanted, they designed their own dresses, they got up when they wanted, and they decided uh, many things for that very short period of their life as courtesans. And then it was it was over at a certain period, and their life became very, very difficult. You never knew your grandmother, of course, as you mentioned. She no, killed herself, no. and, and she killed herself in 1925, right? Yes. I wasn't born. <laughs> right. I wasn't born by then. And so. when you were growing up, what did your—she was your, your mother's mother. Right? Yes. What did your mother tell you about her mother? She expressed great sorrow that she had died. And at first, my mother told me she had died by accident. Later, she said she died by taking too much opium, and it was out of sense of shame that she had been forced to become a concubine. Later, um, she also told me that um, she was the favorite of the, the man who married her. And, and they were called wives, and, and the man was her husband. Um, and then she also told me that she used to, my mother, used to pass around the opium pipe to her mother and uh, the man. Um, she said that her mother was bored on the island. All of these seem like very small details, but looking back when I was piecing these thing, things together... They created portions of a picture. Um, There were also reports of previous suicide attempts when she didn't get her way. Uh, She would pretend to swallow gold or something like that. And um, 
that was an indication to me about the the suicide that they, it happened suddenly in a sense of anger, and it occurred with my grandmother after she was told she would not get that house in Shanghai. So this this photograph, this clue, this possibility led you into researching the world of courtesans, and you mentioned that the the most popular, the the courtesans who worked in the first-class houses in Shanghai had a stature and a freedom that many other women in China did not have. But at the same time, they had to have sex with men who gave them money, which is definitely not a definition of freedom. Exactly, except they got to choose. (laughs) So the men came and courted them, and there might be a number of them courting them um, for a certain period of time. And in the end, the courtesan would be the one who chose who she would be intimate with. And there are many stories of men who claim they were fleeced because they went and gave many gifts over a period of time, and there were others who gave less money, but the courtesan had picked the most handsome one. Um, so there was some degree of choice. The the other part about that in context is that, and and I do have to emphasize context of the period in Chinese history. This is not something we would say is acceptable today. This we would call the equivalent of um, sex slavery in in certain sense, because these girls were initiated quite young, and some of them had been kidnapped. So you can imagine a girl at age 15 being initiated as a virgin courtesan, being sold to the highest bidder. And after that, taking control of her career, but really being a 16-year-old girl and making a lot of uh, decisions based on emotions, you know, which would affect their career later. And so, yes, even though they were the first-class courtesans, they were highly regarded. They were like pop stars in a way, but they eventually had to give themselves to somebody that oftentimes they would choose for various reasons. When you were researching this world, and in in the book, we get to experience what it's like inside a a first class house, and yeah. then and then houses that are not as nice as well. But as you did this research about the courtesans and about prostitution in Shanghai during this time, nineteen ten, nineteen twelve, how prevalent? was this? How how big was the world of prostitution at the time? It was huge. Um, it, starting in the 19, I mean, the 1850s, there are stories of courtesans, and those courtesans did not necessarily have sex with their clients. They were known as maestros, people who performed. By the turn of the century, there was fairly, it was pretty much an expectation that these women would have sex, the population or the the demographics of Shanghai was growing rapidly, you know, million people, two million people because of foreign trade. And so you had women. I would say that uh, at one period around that time, one out of every hundred women in Shanghai was in the trade. 
We are listening to my 2013 conversation with Amy Tan when she published The Valley of Amazement. More to come in a moment on the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are listening to my 2013 conversation with author Amy Tan. Amy, just before the break, we were talking about how big the sex trade was in China in the early part of the 20th century. And you said that one out of every 100 women at that time were involved in the sex trade. And at the beginning of the book, at least, we are introduced to the world of a high-class, first-class courtesan house. But yes. uh-huh. that that was a very different world from from some of the other women who were in this trade. Yes, and if you were a first-class courtesan, you could follow a trajectory, and that that will give you some idea of the different levels of prostitution. From a first-class house, if once you were over the hill or not very popular, um, you might go to a second-class house. The furniture wasn't as good. Sex would be expected, say, within a few days. Um, then there would be flower, opium flower houses, smoke a little opium with a client. They probably could get sex at the end of that with a little extra money. School teachers, wives who had lost their husbands might open part of their home for several hours and take clients. There were street walkers and at the very bottom sex slaves who had to lie in sheds as a line of men came and had them prepared. For pennies, uh, so it was a it was a brutal life, and even for the first class courtesan, there was the specter that they would they would descend into this hell. There were reports of very popular courtesans, celebrities, who wound up as streetwalkers and then killed themselves. Well, and the the women had really one of two trajectories that they could take. They could become usually a second or third wife, yes. or as they aged, make their way down that ladder. Or I guess a, a third option would be to open your own house. Yes. Oh, well, there's, there was another option, and that is if you were very, very lucky and found somebody, um, a husband, who, uh, a man who really, really, truly loved you and was crazy about you, you could, might become the first wife. Um, or if you were extremely talented in singing, you might become a singing star. Um, but you can imagine how rare those opportunities would be. In reading about the women in your book, one of the things that comes up again and again is the foot binding. And not all of the women in your story have their feet bound, mm-hmm. but yeah. that was a symbol of, of high class, of beauty, but it also crippled these women. Yes. Around that period of 19, um, the early 1900s, 1910, 1912, um, 
most of the women, the high-class women, still had their feet bound, but it had been outlawed um, after uh, a certain period. My grandmother, for example, who was around 20 at the at around 1910, um, she had her feet bound and then unbound when she was around 12, so around the time, the turn of the century. Um, it was still considered uh, for quite a long time a, a you know a, a, a beauty, a rarity. A, I don't know why, because the feet, if they unbound the feet, they they were deformed and they smelled. Um, but that's what uh, what was popular. This story was inspired by a photograph of your grandmother, although this is not your grandmother's story. Yeah, um, no. The the two women that we focus on, that you focus on most in the book, are a mother and a daughter. And the mother is not Chinese. She's American. The daughter is half Chinese, half American, although she grows up for her first several years, at least believing that she too, like her mother, is an American. And I wonder if you could introduce us to them a little bit, if you could read a part in the voice of Violet, the daughter, that tells us a little bit about them and their relationship. Uh, Yes. Um, Lucia, as you said, is an American woman who lived in San Francisco. She's rather petulant. She has an idea in her mind that she's going to find a soulmate. Um, She is not really beautiful, but has a way of being alluring. Um, I want to say just a few words why I chose a white American woman. And part of that is looking at our self-identity and how that is changed by circumstances. Lulu is white. She follows somebody and goes to China. Suddenly she is not the person in her own world. Um, she has to adhere to certain restrictions and limitations. Her daughter also, now living with her mother, has become a success, believes she is American and suddenly discovers she is not exactly. Um, and so these circumstances and the notion of who you are play very much into how they go through life and what gets passed on down through the generations. So here is Violet and her relationship with her mother when she's quite young and how she sees where she fits in her mother's life. My mother had a certain phrase she used with every guest, Chinese or Western. She would walk hurriedly to a certain man and whisper excitedly, you're just the one I hope to see then followed the dip of her head toward the man's ear to whisper some secret, which caused the man to nod vigorously. Some kissed her hand. This repeated phrase distressed me. I'd noticed that she was often too busy to pay any attention to me. She no longer played the guessing games or sent me on treasure hunts. We no longer lay in her bed, cuddled next to each other as she read the newspaper. She was too busy for that. Her gaiety and smiles were now reserved for the men at her parties. They were the ones she had hoped to see. One night, as I crossed the salon with Carlotta, the cat in my arms, I heard Mother call out, Violet, you're here. You're just the one I hoped to see. At last, I had been chosen. 
She gave profuse apologies to the man she had been conversing with, citing that her daughter required her urgent attention. What was so urgent? It did not matter. I was excited to hear the secret she had saved for me. Let's go over there, Mother said, nudging me toward a dark corner in the room. She took my arm in hers, and we were off at a brisk pace. I was telling her about Carlotta's latest antics, something to amuse her when she let go of my arm and said, Thank you, darling. She walked over to a man in the corner of the room and said, Fairweather, my dear, I'm sorry I was delayed. Her dark-haired lover stepped out of the shadows and kissed her hand with fake gallantry. She returned a crinkle-eyed smile. I had never seen her gift to me. I could not breathe, crushed by my short-lived happiness. She had used me as her pawn. Worse, she had done so for Fairweather, a man who had visited her from time to time and whom I had always disliked. I had once believed I was the most important person in her life, but in recent months that was disproved. Our special closeness had become unmoored. She was always too busy to spend time chatting with me during her midday meals. Instead, she and Goldendove used that hour to discuss the evening plans. She seldom asked me about my lesson or what I was reading. She called me darling, but she said the same to many men. She kissed my cheek in the morning and my forehead at night, but she kissed many men and some on the mouth. She said she loved me, but I did not see any particular sign of that. I could not feel anything in my heart but the loss of her love. She had changed toward me, and I was certain that it had started the day when I threatened to betray her. Bit by bit, she was having nothing to do with me. Amy Tan reading from her most recent novel, The Valley of Amazement. What was it about exploring the lives of an American woman and her half-American daughter in this very traditional Chinese world that was so confining for women? Where did that idea come from? I thought of my grandmother's own circumstances, as well as my mother's and their inability to do certain things, for example, leave their own marriages. Um, I thought of my own circumstances and how we are defined um, by those circumstances. You know, a lot of people might say, well, why didn't she just leave? Why didn't she find a job? Well, those things were impossible women who lost their husbands, who might have been quite wealthy. Um, were, where did they go? There was nothing, uh, you know, no society for women who were widows, and oftentimes they, they went into the streets. So I wanted to look at how differently we approach our lives and the attitudes that we have when this is forced upon us in the context of this society. And I see parallels also in what happens to women today. Slavery, sex slavery, is a huge, huge problem, you know, ranking among the top problems of the world today. And so some of what I write about does apply to women who cannot escape from a situation like this. Well, and, and Violet, the daughter, 
was raised to believe that she had worth and she had rights and that her ideas were actually worth something. Yeah. And later she is forced into a world where that is just not true. That is not how she's treated. Right. She she reacts with a great deal of, of pride, the pride of an, a Westerner during that time. The Westerners... Um, were very much in control, um, had a great disdain for the Chinese. They lived in the foreign settlement, the West, it was called the International Settlement, which included Americans, um, the British, uh, Canadians, Australians, and the Japanese. But they had their own laws, they had their own privileges, they had servants, and they only talked to them in pidgin, even if, even if somebody could speak English. So you can imagine how Violet feels going from this very privileged American um, who could assume certain rights to suddenly becoming Chinese. Um, and not only that, if she was half Chinese, she was looked down by both races. Um, it was a very, very different time, and there were many Eurasians um, as a result of um no, I wouldn't say they were intermarriage. Uh, that was very rare. That was that was not allowed. But um, relationships, relations, r- whether whether forced or, or or voluntary. Do you ever feel like you're being cruel to these characters that you bring to life for us? Cruel, and I don't ever think that I'm cruel to my characters. They think that I place my characters in very different situations, um, some of them that are clearly not um, not nice. I could not write a completely, you know, romantic book, how somebody goes into this world, is able to escape, and finds true love. Um, I needed to look at a reality. And so it's not my being cruel. It were, they were the times that were very cruel. And if anything, I, I let off um, Violet with, with a much better ending, so to speak, uh, in her life than happened to many women in that world. Do your characters ever surprise you when they enter into these difficult circumstances? I know that a lot of writers... Um, it's as though their characters are controlling the situation, controlling the story. I pretty much am in control of this world, and it's as though I'm the character, and so I get to decide what to do. But there are times toward the the end of the writing when everything appears um, as as the complete universe. And I have a complete understanding of these characters and all the situations and what it leads up to. The writing happens very, very quickly at that point. And there are things that surprise me, what comes out um, and what is has always been there in the character but now has, has come out. So that usually happens at the end. 
in all of your books, even when circumstances are very difficult, there are times when I can see you or feel you having fun with language. And in this book, one of the places where I saw that was in some of the poetry in the book. You include some real poetry <laughs> in the book, but you also, you create poetry for one of your characters. And it's yes. not yeah. that good. <laughs> no. Um, I had to really work at that to make that bad. You know, I would write it the first time. It's a it's a man who's wooing a woman, and um, he has stolen real poetry that's that's quite famous, and and Violet is just bowled over by that. And then he continues to write poetry, and they're not quite the same caliber. In fact, you know, Violet's sidekick or attendant, Magic Gord, notices they're quite bad. Um, they're not something you want to perform in the house. Uh, and and so they're they're essentially a lot that are just about him, or they have some really hilarious imagery, like his lover dying and then lying on a cold stone, um, you know, where she, which what would have been her bed had she lived, and it is it very corny, um, and it's pointed out. I had to I had to really point it out lest readers think that I actually thought that was good poetry. <laughs> You had to make it very make obvious. Make no mistake, you know. And I, I made a joke about this. You know, when people talk about what's a literary novel, and I, you know, there's no definition. You can, you know, Amazon lumps things into literary, and I don't know what else. But uh, my joke was, well, there's really bad poetry that I wrote in there, and everybody knows it's bad, and that kind of knowledge is what makes it literary. <laughs> it's sort of like the inside knowledge. We we know something, and um, you know, that I guess we're supposed to imagine somebody else might think that was actually really good poetry. <laughs> we're listening to my 2013 conversation with Amy Tan. That was shortly after she published The Valley of Amazement. More to come in a moment on the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are listening to my 2013 conversation with author Amy Tan. Before the break, we were talking about some of the bad poetry you wrote for this book. You also did something entirely new for you for this book. You have written a lot about relationships and difficult relationships before, but in entering the world of courtesans, you have written sex scenes in a novel for really <laughs> yeah, the first time for yeah, you. Yeah. Was that a challenge for you? That was a real challenge. You know, I had been made fun of by my writers group in the past and my my freelance editor that um, I couldn't write sex. Um, there was something blocking me, uh, and that I was a prude of some sort. And I said, "No, it's because everything I write, people end up thinking is my life that it's autobiographical. And so if I write sex scenes, they'll think that they're peering into my bedroom." And um, one day my freelance editor, after she'd read a few chapters of The Valley of Amazement, she said, listen, this takes place in a courtesan house, 
and you have to have sex scenes. And I and I thought, well, she's right. You know, they're not playing ping pong for a good time. So I had to first of all do some research. Um, this I decided was something I could get into because this would be based on the kind of sex uh, protocols and you know flirtations that that a courtesan might have. So I felt a little bit safer that way. But still, there are things in there that might appear a little kinky. And I have to say, it's all research. Um, it's it's not it's not me. Well, uh, there were there were, for example, old names of actual aphrodisiacs, and I put those in there. And, and it's hilarious. Some of the research that I did that I dropped into the book was was quite fun. The the terms they use for sex organs, or you know, the the notions of uh, the the different positions that actually had funny names to them. You know, you mentioned that people assume all of your work is autobiographical. And, of course, there are storylines in the Joy Luck Club that were inspired by your life. And one of those storylines um, is about the mother who had to leave her twin daughters behind in China. And, and your mother had to leave children behind in China as well. When did you find out about that? You know, the, my memory of this is is different from letters that I read later on um, when I knew. I thought that I knew when I was about 15, but, but then I heard that I actually found out when I was much younger, say around 12, and I don't recall it, and perhaps because it was so shocking to me to find out my mother first had been married to somebody else when divorce at that period was very, very shocking. Um, and then that she had daughters, which raised a fear in me. Most of all, it was that she had daughters who she loved and spoke Chinese and were obedient. And my recollection, she told me this out of a, in a fury, as if she wished she had not given up those children to have me and there was also the fear that, you know, if this is a mother who would give up these other daughters, she could just give up on me. And where would I be? Um, those daughters, by the way, were not abandoned by the side of the road, right. and there were three of them. But, however, my uncle and um, aunt did have to abandon a baby uh, to a poor farmer family when they were young communists um, and were afraid that if the baby cried that they and the others uh, would be caught and killed. And for the sake of of their group of people that they had to do this, they did find the daughter years and years later, who did not, of course, want to leave the family, even though she was starving. My mother left those daughters under different circumstances. She had an abusive husband who would not let her go. And my mother was in love. And there are many different ways you can either justify or not justify what she did. I think it falls on the side um, from my sisters of never being able to justify that. Even though they dreamed of her, they wanted her back, they believed that she would be the answer that would bring them happiness again, they went through the Cultural Revolution, sent to the countryside, worked in those rice fields, leeches on their legs, um, everything you can imagine 
working, living in that place. And I think they also had unresolved anger toward her. And my mother refused to accept that anger, believing that her circumstances and the reasons why she left, um, left her no choice. She didn't know, however, that she would not be able to come back and get them for 30 years when the communists took over, that it would close off relations between the U.S. and China for, for a very, very long period of time. In your books and in your research, you have done so much to explore the world that your mother and your grandmother and other women lived in in China and the circumstances that they had to overcome. And, for example, in the Joy Luck Club, we find out about these women who who really had done things that on the outside seem unforgivable, but when you explore the circumstances, you have sympathy for them. And I that's a re, re, repeating theme. And in this book, too, in The Valley of Amazement, there are things done that you think, how how could any woman do that? But then, yes. but then, of course, you know, these circumstances are so crushing and so confining. Was that something that you had to explore to be able to understand how your mother could have left those daughters behind? I was rather troubled by the fact that she had left them. And I tried to justify it for her and say, well, there was... There was no way she could stay in the marriage. It was abusive. He wouldn't let her have the children anyway, and on and on. But, you know, part of me looks at it from the point of an American who lives in a more modern time, saying there's nothing that would justify a mother leaving her child. And so in this book, you know, when there are children who are left behind, the tendency is to say, no, no mother would do that. Uh, you know, mother would rather die than allow this, uh, allow herself not to try and be reunited with her with her daughter, any child. And um, it was just a different situation back then, where there was almost an acceptance of, for example, that your child might die, or that um, your circumstances had changed, and you went from being honorable wife to becoming. Uh, streetwalker. You know, I've had people say, well, why did they allow themselves to be uh, pressed into working in the cultural revolution in the countryside? Why didn't they rebel, run away, and get educated and become architects? And I thought, this is how out of touch we are with other countries and, and the opportunities they face. And so it's very hard for others to look at you know, a context, a different country, a different time, especially for women, the situations facing women. And I also had overcome these qualms about what these women might might do or not do uh, for that time. But in doing it, I also had to understand what they develop within themselves. What attitudes did they have and beliefs and hopes did they take on then as a consequence of not having an ability to change their circumstances? Um, what justifications, but also what did they pass on to the next generation? One thing I know that my grandmother said to my mother um, just before she died was, don't be like me. 
Um, and my mother then became adamant about enforcing or advising or inflicting on me her advice, her warnings about what could happen to me if I didn't listen, that I could wind up with a terrible man who would who would be cruel to me and make my life miserable and um, and that I'd want to kill myself and on and on, you know, things that I couldn't understand when, when I was 11 or 12. You know, I didn't know what she was talking about. But it came out of this fear. Um, of what had happened, what you could not change. And now, here you were in America. You could change. Don't succumb to what they had to um, endure. What is your relationship like today with your half-sisters? It is, uh, let me just say, I had three half-sisters, and now I have two. One of them, I I found my mother had feelings toward her, and they turned out to be correct. Um, and and I I can't say exactly what that is. My and my other half sisters don't talk to her either. Um, so I have these two great half sisters, and one of them I helped come bring to the United States, and she just retired. She, I insisted that she not become. Um, you know, take on a job that was different from what she had in China. So she became a software engineer. Um, my other sister is, uh, she immigrated earlier because she was, her brother-in-law was able to bring them over. She ended up working um, in a restaurant. Her husband was a surgical assistant. He had been a surgeon in China. And one day my my sister said to her husband, we are going to exchange the little knife for a big knife, chop, chop, meaning they were going to open up their own restaurant. Um, we spend, a lot, you know, holidays with my other sister, the whole family, and so we are, we are family. You've been doing many other things in addition to writing over the past few years. You've been, uh, you wrote a libretto to the opera based yes, on the bone yes, setter's yes. daughter. <laughs> but you also have had, had a health crisis. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You had Lyme disease, and as that right. continued, yeah. you ended up becoming epileptic. How is your health today? My health is... Great. I'm healthy by a new definition of health, and I think we all have to look at that as we get older because we are acquiring maladies either genetically or through lifestyle or simply getting older or acquiring this, as I did, environmentally by a tick. Um, I am not cured. I have to continue to take um, a certain amount of medication to keep myself um, from getting overwhelmed by this bacteria, and I have to take anti-seizure medication. I'm very open to tell people about telling people that I have epilepsy as a result of this because I want people to know how serious this disease is. It's not curable with a round of 10 days of antibiotics, um, especially if you've had it for a while before you're diagnosed, as was my case four and a half years. Right. Um, and that is to say, you know, listeners, be careful when you go out. It is in every single state. If you go out where there's tall grass, you know, just be really careful. Use your anti-insect, anti-tick, you know, repellent. Um, and keep in mind your animals can bring it in as well. 
Uh, and it's serious. Take a look. If you see a tick, save it, uh, and then send it off to be tested. That is the easiest way rather than waiting for a test that sometimes is not accurate with people. The tick, they can grind up, look at its DNA, and uh, look at what el- whatever else is there and tell you whether it's uh, an infected tick. I'm so glad that you're feeling well, although not. I can write again. <laughs> that's, that's I can walk. Wonderful. I can, you know, I can do everything except drive. And I never like to drive before. I have very, very capable chauffeur now, my husband. He's willing to take me anywhere. So I have it made. <laughs> so with, with all of the things that you have done in recent years and, and feeling strong and being able to write again, what's next for you? Well, I have two other books I'm going to write. Um, I always have these goals that, um, you know, I'm going to retake, take up piano again, or I'm going to, you know, draw. But one of the things that I, I really um, uh, gotten into is, is uh, snorkeling. Not just snorkeling, you know, for fun, but I go off with marine biologists to look for certain things, and I've done that in Indonesia, and as well as in Lake Tahoe, where it's about 50 degrees or, or less. We were snorkeling the other day in 10-millimeter wetsuits, the marine biologist and, and I, uh, looking at salmon spawning. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, in areas where we can look in um, in shallow water for octopuses. Uh, that was her specialty. The, she discovered the bipedal octopus. And I have other biologists. We're, we're going to different parts of the world to discover things. These are people who literally discover species. So it's very exciting to me to link the natural world to human nature. And I've always felt that I, what I've been writing about is human nature, and now I get to link the two. One other thing that I, that took so much time um, out of my writing schedule is that I built a new house uh, from the, the ground up or even underground up. And that house is very, very special because it is completely accessible. No matter what happens in my life, I can live in this house. It is wheelchair accessible, everything about it, bathrooms, doorways, um, everything. And people say, Oh, you know, you're healthy, nothing's going to happen for the future. And I think if I want to continue to write in my house and see what I see today, um, I need this house. And that's because I want to live to be 140 years old. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with thinking something terrible is going to happen. It is being prepared for the future and a very bright and good and healthy future writing many more books and doing many more things. Well, I think we we all hope that for you as well. Amy Tan, thank you so much. Thank you. I spoke with Amy Tan in 2013 when her book, The Valley of Amazement, had just been published. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. See you next time.